Well, part of what that song does, or at least we hoped it would do for our church, is to just kind of reiterate back to the start of this series on God-loving family, that there's no perfect families. But as we talk about parenting, we can readily admit that and kind of commiserate with each other. It seems like there's a little bit of a harder time with marriage. If you're struggling in your marriage, especially in the Christian community, where do you go with that? Is it safe to bring up, hey, we're really struggling? And we have a lot of great connections at this church. We have a lot of people who've raised their hand and said, yeah, I'm struggling. I've heard that you can be real here. I've heard that you have doubts, and you can talk about those here. Is that true? And the answer is yes, that you can. If you can't bring them here, where else would you go? And so we're going to be talking about marriage uh, this morning and just that firm foundation. We, uh, we introduced this song at the start of this series. It's just kind of been a theme song for how to do family. And that is to fundamentally understand the identity of God as a good, good father. And then to turn around and understand that I am the beloved son. I'm the beloved daughter. And to parent from that place, to do marriage from that place, to do relationships from that place is really, really remarkable. It's healthy, it's profound, it's rejuvenating, and it's biblical. And so as we sing this, just before we get into the word, let this identity, let the reality and truth of who God is and who you are in light of who God is kind of, kind of wash over you. Thank you. Thanks, band. This morning, we're diving in to the topic of marriage. And as I was going through and putting this together, I, I got to say, I was really tempted to record this so that I could sit along with you and just soak in the truths of this. This has been really, really convicting for me as I've been putting this together, just looking at marriage and God's design for it. So I went with the next best thing and have my wife sitting right up here. She's going to keep me honest and... <laughs> Please feel free to come and ask her, is that really, is that right? Afterwards, she is, she is there for that. But before we, we dove into marriage, I kind of wanted to set the playing field and kind of make it even and start out by saying that we are all broken people. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every single one of us. Romans 3, 10 to 12 says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We are all broken people. There is no point comparing yourself to others. A lot of people, when asked, you know, they, they would say, yeah, I'm a good person. And then very quickly after that, they would rattle off, oh, well, you know, I haven't murdered, you know, I don't steal, you know, I've been faithful to my spouse, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a good person. And really what they're saying is, I'm not as bad of a person as a murderer. I'm not as bad of a person as a thief. I'm not as bad of a person as an adulterer. I'm, I'm not as bad as somebody else. But when really pressed, you, you would be hard, it would be hard to find someone that would say, no, I'm perfect. I haven't made any mistakes. We are all broken people. In fact, uh, Isaiah 64.6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean. 
and all our righteous deeds, however good you think you are, however wonderful deeds you think you've done, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. So, lest we walk in with any sort of pride or confidence in who we are, I wanted to set the stage and just bring us back to the truth. And in regards to marriage, every marriage is a broken marriage. Even the first marriage, which started out perfect, absolutely perfect, which we'll get into in a little bit. But it was perfect. They felt no shame. They were, they were, they were one. They were united. And it broke pretty quickly. Adam, what happened? Uh, the woman, she, she gave me that fruit, Lord. It's her fault. What, what just happened here? What happened to the oneness? What happened to the unity in that marriage? So every marriage is a broken marriage. So if you're walking in here feeling ashamed about your marriage, know that what seem to be perfect marriages as you look around you, they have pitfalls. They have struggles. They have brokenness. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Every single one of us has a broken marriage. Every single one of us has had weakness, has had struggles, has had heartaches. And hopefully what has happened in some of those is that the power of Christ has shone through. And that his mercies and that who he is has shown up in your marriage. That you're relying on him. No such thing as a perfect marriage. Uh, maybe you're walking in this morning and you feel a sense of pride about your marriage and, and, and how well it's going. And man, we're doing really good. Well, I'd point you to two verses in Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And Proverbs 29, 23 is, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And so just to have... Uh, a right sense of where you're at and, and not to walk in overconfident because it's so easy to be, to be confident in your marriage and, and just to rest on, yeah, we're good and stop investing the effort and the work that it takes. We are all on the same plane. None of us have mastered God's design for marriage. So I begin with this because it's really easy to check out from a marriage sermon if you're not married or if you feel like your marriage is fine. The reality is, no matter where you're at, this morning is for you. First of all, if you're married, God's, we're, we're going to take a look at God's design for marriage. And so if you're married, I want you to look at God's design versus where you're at in your marriage. What are some things you need to focus on? Where do you need to work? For some of you, the answer is much easier than others. It's easy when you've got a, a, a gaping wound to go, yeah, I, I'd better take care of that. 
But it's harder sometimes when you've got an ache and you're not exactly sure where that ache is coming from and how do I take care of it. But wherever the hurt is, wherever the pain is, focus in on that. Maybe you're in this room and you were married at one point and you're not married right now. I would say reflect on your marriage. Thank God for the things that you've learned and how you've grown. Take stock of God's design versus your pitfalls and your successes. And then take what you've learned and share that with others. Tell them what you learned. Allow them to learn from you. Look, a lot of us are hard-headed people and we need to learn the hard way. But man, I love it when someone who's been along longer in life than me comes along and says, look, here are some things that I learned. Here are some things that that went really well for me in my marriage, and here are some things where I totally messed up. And I love hearing those uh, and, and, and taking those to heart. If you aren't yet married, take careful notes of God's design. I would also encourage you to find couples that have a marriage that reflect God's design and learn from them. Granted, again, We're all broken people. None of us have the perfect marriage. But find someone that you see, man, they're they're really lining up with God's design. I want to learn from them. And pray for a future spouse that will desire God's design for you. And then the final group is uh, if you are called to celibacy. If you are called to celibacy in this room, I, I would encourage you, first of all, to pray for the marriages in this room. To pray for your friends. Be a support and sounding board for your married friends. And when they get off track, point them to the truth. Point them to God's design. So regardless of where you're at, this morning is for you. The title of this morning is is called Firm Foundation. And the reason I called it that is that a marriage that follows God's design is a firm foundation. God started with marriage. Marriage is the first institution that he created. And so when it feels like your marriage is crumbling around you, run to his design. Extend grace. Love sacrificially. Be quick to listen. Be ready to forgive. That's what you need when when life starts crumbling around you. You need a firm foundation. And a marriage that follows God's design, a marriage with God at the center, is that firm foundation. Uh, Something I I say often is a healthy home begins with a healthy marriage. Uh, We have this event that uh, we've been doing uh, once or twice a year called Date Night Plus, and that's the tagline. And the reason we do it is to pour into marriages. As Laura Laura and I are going through premarital counseling right now, not for ourselves, We're leading premarital counseling with two different couples right now. And we've gotten the joy of of doing this before as well. And premarital counseling, as we talk about it, we focus heavily on communication. We, We talk a lot. And one thing I say often is I say, if you have God at the center of your marriage, and if you can communicate openly and honestly with each other, you are well equipped to tackle whatever life throws your way. So this healthy home, this, this de- desire that you have to, to raise up kids and, and to, to pour into the next generation has to start with the two of you. 
being able to communicate well, being able to understand each other well. And this is something that Laura and I work at hard so that we can be on the same page with each other. And I would be the first one to say it hasn't been easy, but uh, we work through it. Thanks for hanging with me, babe. (laughs) So this morning we're going to look at God's design for marriage. And we're going to look at a lot of different scriptures. So be ready with a pen to write stuff down. Be ready to flip back and forth a little bit. But before we get deeper into this, let me just pray and give God this morning. Lord, I just want to say thank you. First of all, thank you for my wife, for a partner in ministry, for for someone who's there with me through the good and the bad, who continues to love me. But Lord, I I thank you for the institution of marriage. Lord, for how it reflects your love for us. How we understand you in a new way through marriage. Lord, I ask that as we dive into this this morning, um, Lord, I recognize that there are many hurts and pains in this room around marriage. Lord, I ask that we bring those hurts and pains at your feet, that we give them to you, and Lord, that we really dial into what you have to say. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to surrender to your will and not ours. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been going through this series called God-Loving Family. And we're wrapping up this morning, looking at marriage. So what I wanted to do is just in the vein of this series is look at three different things. First of all is that God loves family by giving us marriage. And so we're going to look at where marriage was created and kind of unpack that section of Genesis chapter 2. And then second, we're going to look at kind of the flip side of that statement Uh, We are a God-loving family by submitting to and following his design for marriage. And so we're going to look at God's design for marriage and and what that is. And then finally, we're going to look at the fact that God loves family by addressing difficult issues. And so we're going to briefly mention a couple difficult issues regarding marriage and look at what Scripture has to say about those. But if you would, open up in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to take a look at marriage created. That's your first blank fill-in if you want to write on your paper at all. Marriage created. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 18. I love this. This is so good. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, uh, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So let's take this and unpack it a little bit. It starts out in verse 18. It says, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, as I've, I've grown up in the church and uh, as I've been through that passage multiple times, I've heard a lot of negative connotations around that. And especially um, as I've started talking to more and more people outside the church, they look at that and they go, man, that just is so demeaning to women to, to put them at this lower state. Like, oh, you're, you're just coming along as a helper. And a lot of them look at it as along the same veins of if, you know, my four-year-old comes up to me and I'm working on something, he says, Daddy, I want to help. Okay, well, here, you, you hold this hammer, and when Daddy's ready for it, you give it to him. Can you do that for me? Yeah, Dad, I can. Okay, great. And so he's standing there holding the hammer, and then all of a sudden he starts hitting things and breaking things and creating more work for Daddy. But, you know, he's, he's kind of helping, but kind of not, you know, because this word is used elsewhere in Scripture. It's used here in Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, when it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And in Exodus 18.4, it says, The God of my Father was my help. That same word, Hezer. And delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. In fact, in Exodus 18, when it's talking about it, it's giving uh, explanation for the name Eliezer, where the Ezer is help and Eli means God. So it's saying God is my help. That's exactly what that name means. But this is not the, the hold a hammer kind of help. There you go. You, now you're helping daddy. But rather, this is a necessary help without which nothing would be accomplished. And in fact, uh, when it says, uh, I will make him a helper fit for him, you, you almost, as you're looking at the Hebrew, you almost want to switch the order of those two. I want to make a fit helper. I want to make a suitable helper. I want to make a good helper. Uh, another way to tr- translate it is corresponding. I want to make a corresponding helper. Someone that comes and fills in the holes and fills in the gaps to really complete She is a partner and a counterpart. And without her, he couldn't fulfill what he was called to do. Imagine God saying just to Adam, hey, be fruitful and multiply. I'm missing something. I'm missing something. Yeah. Um, But but her presence is so much more um, than than the demeaning sense that uh, the word often gets. So let's jump down to to verse 21. And it says, The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up the place with flesh. Uh, The rib uh, he had taken, made into a woman, brought it to the man. Man said, This is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here we are again. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Man, what a great start. 
What a great start. Uh, many people I talk to tell me how God brought them together, but there's never been a, another story quite like this, where God picked Adam's wife for him, literally. I'm going to make you a wife. And what's cool, too, is that um, as God designed this relationship, he designed it for unity. Notice here, and I briefly mentioned, you know, that, that God does commission the two of them to be fruitful and multiply. But Adam isn't excited about someone that's going to come along and do that. He's excited about her just for who she is. God made her, brought her to the man, and he was excited. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And as previously discussed, the two are corresponding for each other. God designed them to perfectly fit together, to perfectly match each other, and to fill each other's holes and weaknesses. Now, I skipped over two verses. We looked at 2.18, and then we jumped down to 21 verse through 25. But in verses 19 and 20, we've got this uh, cute little story um, that, you know, I grew up hearing uh, at church where Adam goes and he names all the animals. Oh, that must have been a cool job, cool thing for, for Adam, you know, go through and, okay, you're this, you're this, you're this, and on and on he goes. And he got to, to make them up. And I remember as a kid, like, kind of thinking, man, you know, uh, if I had that job, I think I would have named some of them a little bit differently, you know. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I always heard this as an isolated story. And only recently I've started to uh, see the beauty of it when it's viewed in context. So God says, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. All right, Adam. Here's all these different animals that I've made. Let's see if we can find a helper. And off they go. Adam names every single one. And it says at the end of verse 20, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Do you think God was disappointed? Like, ah, oh, I, I was hoping we'd find one in there, you know? I know, like, you know, the ants are pretty useless, but, you know, maybe like the horse or the, the dog, like that, that would have fulfilled. No, of course not. It was rather for Adam's benefit. So why does God do this? Uh, there's two reasons that I see. Uh, first of all, God does this to show Adam that nothing else is that suitable helper, is that fit helper that, that Adam needs. None of them, though many animals have different values and, and helpful things that they can do, none of them was that exact fit, that perfect fit. Uh, and then also, uh, to help Adam remember how good he has it. To help Adam remember how good he has it. I love in uh, verse 23, the man, when you look at this in context, it's hilarious. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones. Adam just went through and named every single animal 
At last, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Finally, after going through all of that, I've finally found that one helper that I was looking for. It's so easy when you get married uh, to settle into a routine. It's so easy to get comfortable and uh, just kind of, uh, you know, going through the motions with your marriage. But what this passage does for me is it forces me to go back to my relational beginnings. Thinking about first dates or some of our favorite songs, our favorite places to eat, some of those initial feelings when we first saw each other and, ooh, wow, she's hot. Um, whatever it is. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was going back uh, through my old uh, email account and looking at some of the old emails that uh, Laura and I had sent each other even before we started dating. And um, I just want to read uh, a portion of one. Uh, Laura wrote to me. She said, I just love talking with you, having actual conversation, sharing thoughts and reason. I love the encouragement I get from you. I appreciate your advice. I look forward to spiritual encouragement as well. And man, that was so good uh, for me just to, to go back and be reminded of, of how it all started with us. You know, it started with these great conversations and it was just great to be brought back to that and go, oh yeah, you know. And, and, and I found uh, sometimes we just get into this routine and we don't have some of those deep conversations. Um, and it's good to be, to be brought back to that. So, so God parades all these animals before Adam so that as, as Adam is getting upset with Eve or frustrated with Eve and why couldn't you do this or why, you know, what's going on? Why aren't, why aren't we communicating well? He can be brought back to, man, I went through this whole process and there was no helper fit for me. And God then brought me Eve. And so it's this, this beautiful story and this beautiful picture. And Adam uh, finally finishes his naming job by naming woman, which in Hebrew is Isha. Um, and, and that name is significant because of how similar it is to his name, which is Ish. Ish is man and Isha is woman. Um, and so he gave her a name like his because he recognized how alike she was to him. So God went through and created marriage. So now let's look at uh, God's design. So in the passage we just looked at, we watched as God created marriage. And through this and other parts of Scripture, we see the fullness of God's design for marriage. And we're going to focus on three key aspects of God's design. Because there's a lot to it. But we're going to kind of take uh, a 30,000-foot view of it. First of all, the Lord builds... God builds marriage. This is the foundation of a biblical marriage. I love Psalm 127.1. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It's got to start with God. 
uh, in Ecclesiastes 4.12 is a common passage uh, that people talk about, uh, that people like to have read at weddings and stuff like that. And it says, though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And the reason that verse is brought up is they, they want God woven into every aspect of their marriage. And Song of Solomon is the journey of a husband and wife with God celebrating the relationship. So the Lord builds. The Lord builds. Uh, and that has to be the foundation. So a question I'd toss out is, what is the foundation of your marriage? Uh, second part of God's design. Oh, there it is, firm foundation. Uh, second part of God's design is uh, one man, one woman, one lifetime. One man, one woman, one lifetime. This is the most countercultural part of God's design. And in culture, we're at odds in two key areas. First of all, in the area of homosexuality. It's big in the news right now. It's, it's huge. And it's getting to the point that people are looked at odd when they think that it's wrong. But God's design doesn't allow for it. Implicitly, uh, he doesn't allow for it. Genesis 2.24, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Ephesians 5.22-23 are different passages where God talks about male and female, man and woman. And so it's, it's never talked about as man and man or woman and woman. So there's this uh, implicit uh, uh, way that God talks about it in, in saying, no, this is what marriage is. It's man and woman. But he also talks about homosexuality explicitly. In Romans 1.27, in 1 Corinthians 6.9, in 1 Timothy 1.10, he, he goes through and condemns homosexuality in multiple places. Now, I have to stop and say, this doesn't mean that we don't love or have relationships with people that are engaged in or support this lifestyle. As Christians following God's design for marriage, we should recognize that others have different moral values, uh, sorry, different morals, different values, and different priorities than us. Our main objective should be pointing them and anybody else to Jesus. This should not be something exclusionary. I mean, I can't talk to you because you support this. Absolutely not. And it's getting more and more common. But as far as God's design, homosexuality is not a part of it. Uh, the other thing that is countercultural is God's view on divorce. He hates it. And this is nothing new. In our culture, it's, it's accepted and, and it's normal. It's, it's, it's a part of things. But like I said, it's nothing new. In Mark 10, it says this, And the Pharisees came up, uh, and in order to test Jesus, asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed uh, a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The simple fact of the matter is that God hates divorce. He hates it. And divorce is painful. Now, please don't hear me trying to oversimplify what I know is a complicated and difficult topic. There are many other specific scenarios. There are many other scriptures that get into this. But those two things remain true. That God hates divorce and that it is painful. Divorce is not a part of God's design for marriage. One man, one woman, one lifetime. Third part of God's design is that there's different roles, different things that we need to do as husbands and wives. Husbands need to lead. Wives need to submit. Both need to love. In Ephesians 5, there's a couple different verses that talk about husbands stepping up and leading. First of all, uh, Ephesians 5.23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Men, we continue to fall short in this area. With Homer Simpson and Peter Griffin as our role models, culture tells us to be absent, spineless, and apathetic. That is not what God has called us to be as men and as husbands. An elder requirement in 1 Timothy 3.4 says, He must manage his own household well. Men, we need to step it up. We need to lead by example. Ephesians 5.27 says, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Part of a husband leading is loving. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, we need to step up and we need to lead. Wives. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 1 Peter 3.1 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Uh, so, wives, if you are particularly strong-willed, make sure you're giving your husband opportunities to lead. Pray for wisdom for him in leadership. Help him lead. This, again, is countercultural but isn't part of following Christ being aliens and strangers in this world. Now, I want to just take a moment and say this does not mean being a yes woman. This means allowing him to fulfill his God-given weighty responsibility as the head of the household. And uh, both husbands and wives are called to love. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. First Corinthians chapter 13 is a common, uh, another common passage used, uh, in marriage ceremonies, um, and talked about a lot. But look what we're called to do. Starting in verse four, it says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant 
or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, sure, this isn't written about marriage specifically. But isn't this where it should begin? If you can't love your spouse this way, how can you ever hope to love anybody else this way? Bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. Husbands need to lead, wives need to submit, both need to love. Now we've taken a look at uh, God's design for marriage. But as I said from the beginning, we are broken people. And marriage isn't as simple as just following three guidelines. Sometimes marriage is challenged. And the beautiful thing, though, is that God speaks to those challenges. So I'm just briefly going to address three different ones. First of all, maybe you're in this room and you're still single. What I'd encourage you with is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 and 32 through 35, where it talks a lot about how God has you in the state you're in for a reason. So don't get so wrapped up in waiting for what's next that you miss the opportunities and capabilities you have to serve him in a unique way as a single person. Don't miss those opportunities. I know it's hard to wait. And I've wrestled through that myself for years. It was hard. And I often got caught up in, man, I can't wait to be married. I can't wait to be married. I just want to be married. I just want to be married. That I missed opportunities as a single guy to be able to do things that I couldn't do when I was married. A second challenging thing. Maybe you have an unbelieving spouse. Scripture speaks to this as well in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 16. And in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 2. I'll let you uh, write those down and look those up later. Uh, But the Bible says to remain committed to your spouse and that your love will point them to Jesus. And that's the main thrust of what those scriptures talk about. But it addresses that issue as well. And then the third is... What if you're in an abusive relationship? The Bible doesn't specifically address the person being abused as to what they should do. But Scripture does have verses that talk about violence and how to treat others. Psalm 11.5 and Colossians 3.19 are two examples of those. How God hates violence and husbands uh, shouldn't be demeaning to their wives. And then also we have Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, which are verses that address sin and how to deal with it and how to confront it. And it it starts off by talking about, man, if someone sins against you, go to them directly. If they continue to sin, which is usually the case with abuse, to bring others along. And with any one of these 
uh, challenges in marriage or with any other challenge or issue or difficulty that you are facing in marriage, the best word that I can give you is Galatians 6.2, which says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you are having a challenge in your marriage, a difficulty in your marriage, if you are wrestling with something, don't do it alone. But bring somebody else along. Bring somebody else to help, to, to, to love you, to encourage you, to support you, to just be a sounding board. Bring others in to that relationship. Bring others in uh, to help. Uh, some of you would, would classify your marriage as being in ICU right now. And uh, we're going to be having uh, a community group that's going to be specifically tailored uh, for those uh, in that scenario. So my encouragement to you and my challenge to you would be to, to be honest about where you're at and sign up for that community group. If you want to be held accountable, if you're feeling convicted about it right now, grab one of the communication cards, write your name on the front, and then on the back write Marriage ICU. And then after, just walk up and hand that to me. And I will get in touch with you about when that class is uh, and about getting signed up for that and about pouring into your marriage. I know it's humbling and I know it's difficult, but look, we're all broken. We all have broken marriages. And we all need help as we go. So please reach out and have, ask for help. What I want to leave us with is fight for your marriage. As I started out in the beginning, this is for all of us. If you're called to celibacy, pray for the marriages in this room. Like I said, be a support and sounding board for your married friends. When they get off track, point them to the truth. Point them back to God's design. If you aren't yet married, again, take careful notes of God's design. Pray for a future spouse that will desire God's design. Don't settle. Don't settle for someone that isn't going to uphold God's design, that doesn't want Christ at the center. You need that firm foundation. And again, if you were married, please share with others. Tell them what you've learned. Allow them to learn from you. And if you are married, don't give up. Fight for your marriage. It's so easy in today's culture to just toss in the towel. To say, "Eh, well, we just don't like each other anymore. We're done. Fight for your marriage. Be countercultural. Let me pray. God, thank you for your design for marriage. Thank you for how you have put this together. Lord, you had a beautiful design from the very beginning. And honestly, Lord, sometimes I ditch it. I ditch your design to try to fit my own in. Lord, please just continue to convict me when I start wandering away. Help me get back on the straight and narrow path. 
Help me continue to have my marriage focused on you, with you as the foundation. Lord, thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.